1: Is playing for the national title.
0: It's too long Syracuse is your national
2: champion. Who's out?
3: What's up, Syracuse fans? It's Mike McAllister from AllSyracuse.com with episode 65 of the Believe in Syracuse podcast, presented by Bet Online and Hoffman Sausage Company. We have Josh. And Sammy back with us for this episode. I know it's been a while, but we also have a special guest. And on National Girls and Women's in Sports Day, it is only appropriate that we have a female with us today. We have Emily uh, Shiroff today, who is an Eagles fan, just like myself. So, of course, I had to bring her on because we are going to start. Before we get into Syracuse men's soccer, men's and women's basketball, Syracuse lacrosse, National Signing Day, loaded show for you today. We are going to start with Fly Eagles Fly and the Super Bowl. Uh, We'll just kind of go around the room. We'll start with you, Josh, and your thoughts on the matchup, um, why it is clear that everyone should be a Philadelphia Eagles fan at this point, and why they are the only franchise in all of sports that everyone should love and nobody should hate.
0: Mm. Well, I I thought I would this, because I'm a real podcaster, um the Joe Budden <laughs> podcast you feel what I'm saying something I consume you feel what I'm saying it's a part of me getting integrated to the New York community all that I, I had to learn how yes to give him team. a
3: lesson everybody please do you feel
0: what I'm saying so um you no know, Joe Budden um convicted felon I believe rapper you feel what I'm saying not a bad person but definitely somebody that's been out here he literally expressed fear about going to Philadelphia in person <laughs> to watch the game because of the Philadelphia Eagles fans a guy that literally soft. made a lot of money as a persona being tough was not tough enough to venture into MetLife. I think soft. that's our
3: stadium. No, so, the um, link, the link. MetLife oh, is, MetLife is Giants jets. Oh we're yes, link, of course. We're Lincoln financial field.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Real, real, real relevant. But, but again, um, that's a, uh, that tells went, me all I need to know about, you know, how y'all really get down out there. Um, kind of frightening. Can't lie. I want to go to the game in person too, you know, two black quarterbacks of Zubo for that. You feel what I'm saying? Heck yeah. But, um, yeah, that's kind of frightening, but on the field, you know. And I mean, I guess I can tell you this: saying like we're gonna be talking about this a lot um, on my show. No cap, sports plug. Um, I actually predicted the Eagles to win the bowl because, like, you know, as much as I think because you are smart.
3: Bet online is the fastest and easiest way to wager on all of your favorite sports, contests, and events with first to market odds and lines. Find reviews and news for every league, including Major League Baseball, NFL, NBA nhl combat sports esports and even golf bet online continues to be the top online resource for all your sports information from live in-game betting props and futures head to bet online today or use your mobile device to join today and make your first sports bet use our promo code believe 50 bleav V five zero to receive your 50 percent welcome bonus on your first deposit bet online where the game starts
0: I mean, it's that's true, smart. that, but, you know, they got the more complete team, and unless Paddy Mahomes pull out some more magic, which is definitely not out of the question. It is you not. Know, you evaluate the 53 for each team, and you're going to get the Eagles more than the Chiefs by a lot. So, you know, you look at San Francisco, who I thought was probably the most complete team, coming in with Brock Purdy to play the way he's playing, with Debo, with CMC, and, um, you know, Brock Purdy got hurt, so that was whatever, um, but y'all, you know, I'll say it like this: People get mad at you know the schedule or the road or whatever, but you got to win the game still. And regardless of the Giants being legit or the Vikings or whatever, like y'all going out there winning games. So you know I've been the big, biggest feel, uh, ego cri- uh, critic. Emily can definitely tell you, but he has. You know. He has <laughs> it, exactly. See let, let me
3: let me tell you this as far as the schedule thing goes before we get into your prediction and and get into Sammy's and Emily's predictions, is the. The schedule thing has been brought up all season for Philadelphia. Um, I feel like it's not brought up in the same way with other teams. It feels like it's a criticism of Philadelphia, but not anybody else. Uh, but if you going into the Eagles Niners game, the conversation was Philadelphia hasn't played anybody. And look, they're finally going to play a complete team with an elite defense and a dynamic offense with a ton of weapons. Philadelphia is going to be, finally tested for the first time. Then Philadelphia's defense is so good that they can't block the Eagles defensive line. It knocks out their two quarterbacks to the point where they don't have anyone that can throw the football anymore. And all of a sudden it's, well, the 49ers didn't really have a quarterback. Well, there's a reason they <laughs> didn't have a quarterback because you couldn't block the Philadelphia defense. But uh, regardless, when you did have a quarterback in there, uh, you turned it over twice. Just saying. Nah,
0: that's a fact. I'm, I'm, so I, think I'm that I think that y'all are the most complete team. Y'all are the most complete team after San Francisco anyways with, you know, y'all got, you know, dynamic weapons all over the field. I don't have to list those those things out for y'all. And I think the biggest hole that y'all have will be, you know, Jalen Hurst's health, which, you know, you can guarantee, you know, two weeks off him rehab and him healing. He'll look more dynamic and explosive than he looked, you know, in the the playoffs thus far. So as much as I don't like to say it, I'm thinking I'm going to be a flying with the Eagles on this one. All right, Emily, your thoughts.
2: Yeah, I mean, all Eagles bias aside, they do. Josh is right. They have the more. <laughs> That's a
0: hilarious draft. statement, first of all. All Eagles <laughs> bias aside. So let me just, you can just turn your camera off,
3: basically. I've I never been biased towards Eagles.
0: I'm oh, sure. God,
3: never, I'm sure. Never.
2: <laughs> never. But, uh, yeah, I mean, Josh is right. I think they have the more complete roster. We have two elite receivers, an elite running back, and Kenneth Gainwell, who you could make the argument for being elite. But on top of that, our defense, how many sacks are they at now? Is it 73,
3: both? I believe they're at yeah. yep. week. Yeah, that,
2: that's quite a monster number. And you know, apparently San Francisco had this legitimate defense, whatever we put up 31 points on them. Bring it on. I mean, Lane, Nick Bosa,
0: no pressures,
2: not even not, not, not only no sacks, no pressures.
0: That's what that Lane Johnson completely another guy that wasn't 100% healthy completely locked Bosa down.
2: Oh, yeah, he's, I mean, he's the be best
3: tackle in football, left or right. He
2: is, 100%. Sir hundred percent. He hasn't allowed a sack in years now, I think, right? It's it's, it's getting insane. It's getting insane. insane. I'm going to take the Eagles, but I think it'll be a good game. Mm -hmm. I think Patrick Mahomes has, I don't want to say a more severe injury, but a harder injury to heal and play through those take a few weeks. Jalen hurts looked, I mean, his, his throws looked fine. They were a little low at times, but I think, I don't know if that's a product of his health or what, but I think he's going to be fine. Pat Mahomes, his injury is more recent, and it is a difficult injury to heal from. As Josh said, is unless he pulls out more magic, which is not out of the question, he's going to have a hard time. I think that entire team is going to have a hard time, but they're going to fight. It's Patrick Mahomes, and it's a Patrick Mahomes led team. They're going to fight no matter what.
3: And Andy Reid is three and zero against Philadelphia since he has uh, gone to Kansas City, so he's undefeated against his former team. That's worth noting. Um, mm-hmm. He is also unbelievable after a buy has been since he was in Philly continued to Kansas City the exception to that is in the Super Bowl where he is one and two so he's got a losing record in, in the Super Bowl as a head coach um, but I think the key to this game is as it usually is but it's in the trenches and it's can Kansas City contain Philadelphia's pass rush because if they can, and they can get Patrick Mahomes some times, even though I think Philadelphia's secondary is good and it's better than what Cincinnati's was last week, uh, the more time you give a quarterback like Patrick Mahomes, obviously the the more chance he has to to make big plays. If Philadelphia's defensive line can dominate like they have been almost all season and continue to pressure Patrick Mahomes so he doesn't have much time, then obviously that that gives Philadelphia a huge advantage. On the other side, I think the the matchup that people won't talk about going into this that much is how Philadelphia contains Chris Jones from Kansas City because he was a one-man wrecking crew against Cincinnati. He was the reason that Kansas City beat the Bengals because Cincinnati could not block it. Uh, Now, Philadelphia has a much better offensive line than Cincinnati does, but they have to be able to contain him so they can give Jalen Hurts some time because Kansas City's secondary is vulnerable. So again, I'm taking Philly, obviously, uh, 100% because of bias. I have no way of evaluating this game unbiased in an unbiased fashion, but I'm definitely taking Philadelphia. I think those are the keys to the game. Uh, Sammy, your thoughts? It's tailgating season, and no one does it better than Hoffman's Sausage Company. Beer bratwurst, jalapeno cheddar sausage, kibasi, and bun-length chicken sausage. Add them to the menu with classic German franks and snappy grillers, and fans will go wild. Proudly made in New York since 1879. When you bite into a Hoffman, you experience a little bit of upstate history. Taste tells. Hoffman is a proud partner of
1: Syracuse University athletics. Before I give mine, I want scores since you guys all picked the same team.
3: Oh, um, okay. I'll, I'll give my score first. Uh, Seventy-three to ten. Wow. <laughs> no, I, I'm just, I'm just messed with it. I'm gonna say, I'm gonna say 27-21.
0: Um. Man, I think it'll be I think it'll be the 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 over in in effect. I will go 34 31.
2: Yeah. I can see a, a 28 to 24 kind of game playing out.
1: All right. So first thing is any game you play against a secondary that doesn't have Eli Apple is going to be a harder game. So that was just to respond <laughs> to that one.
0: Hello. Uh, <laughs> um,
1: All facts. The second thing is, I actually, I was completely wrong in the conference championship, because I thought it was going to be 49ers, Bengals, simply off of momentum with the way those two teams are playing. I do completely agree that the Bengals probably had the least complete roster out of the remaining four teams, and probably weren't even in the top five or six, maybe, the round before that, and mainly because of their offensive and defensive lines, and that was kind of... My concern, as I thought they were just going to ride the momentum, but that's why I'm kind of questioning the chiefs coming into this game is because they struggled against offensive defensive line that they're good. I, the offensive line.
0: shaky, not, good. Uh, not good. Yeah. Not good.
1: I was trying to give them some, some credit cause they did make the conference championship, but you know, we know what they, they, we know what they are. They're not the Eagles. And I think that's the biggest benefit of having your strength be in the trenches. They've built the majority of their team on our offensive, the defensive line. And as great as the Joe Burrow, Jamar Chase connection has been, I still internally think they could have benefited just as much from taking an offensive lineman there. Um, and it, there's no replacing that connection, I understand. But still, like an offensive lineman is really what they're missing at this point. The Chiefs Burrow. still have. Uh,
3: yes.
0: Well, but yeah, I think for sure. Because it's like, I think the big debate that you're talking about was um, Sewell versus Jamar Chase, you know, yeah. in that draft. And, you know, like you said, I mean, we can't go – I mean, they probably well-achieved above what they thought when they were drafting that, but you just look at the injuries that Brol sustained and some of the shortcomings they've gotten, you know, on the pencil I mean, they got the Super Bowl, but, you know, like you said, you go even in the Super Bowl, Aaron Donald basically winning the game for them and then, you know, last week. So I think that, it, that even though it turned out marvelously, that is something that, you know, that's a good point, Sam, that you still want to – that's something that you can still regret, I get you to say.
1: And when you're going up against good defensive line lines collectively or a good defensive player, just like we saw, um, it's very difficult to even get a run game going. And I think that's where, where the biggest concern for me with the Chiefs, with how poorly they ran the ball uh, in the conference championship, as well as with the Bengals at that one point. So that's why as much as it does pain me, I think I'm also going to be picking the Eagles. Brings me a ton of pain. My dad's a Cowboys fan. I'm not going to hear the end if he listens to this. So I'm kind of hoping he doesn't listen to it. Um, but I think it's going to be a little closer to the way the chiefs Bengals game went out a little bit. Like, I think both teams are going to not disappoint, but come out kind of slow. Um, and I think it's going to be a bit more along the lines of, like, 24-21. Okay. Well,
3: um, I... I'm good with all those predictions because my team is winning. So we'll yeah. see how it plays out, and we will uh, revisit our predictions after the Super Bowl has ended and uh, Philadelphia is holding the Lombardi Trophy. So um, <laughs> we're, we'll go from there into men's soccer. And Sammy, even though it's the off season, quote unquote. Uh, That doesn't mean that there hasn't been some eventful news. So one of their heroes from the national championship team, Nathan Oboku, signed a professional contract. So he will no longer be at Syracuse. And then head coach Ian McIntyre signed a quote unquote long term contract extension, even though we don't know exactly what that means, because Syracuse is a private university and they don't disclose those details. But your reaction to both of those uh, pieces of information, all of that news and the positives and negatives to Syracuse soccer?
1: Positive and negative. I just want to know how long Coach McIntyre's extension is. I honestly think they should have tenured him at this point, just because he is the most enjoyable man to work with ever. Um, he's a fantastic also, interview too. He's can, hilarious. can can
0: sports oh, coaches get teen? I thought that was for only academia.
1: I they probably is, but I think they should just make a rule for him. Um, I'm I bored. it's as a first first experience as a reporter, I couldn't have had an easier experience. And obviously, covering a national championship team makes it even better. But still, he made it, even before they had a win under the belt, made it as seamless as possible. But the big so the big thing, I'll touch on McIntyre first. And the, he came in right around the time they were joining the ACC. And they have won two ACC titles. And they came around, what was it? It was 2015 to 2022, 20, 23. So it's about seven years apart. So my guess is that the extension is probably along that length of time to see if he can somewhat recuperate another two full teams being that about four years of teams, because he has a lot of talent to replace in this particular dead period here where he lost Kurt Kalov, he lost Nathan Apoki, he lost Avante Johnson. And I really thought um, and think that Kalov transfer is going to hurt more next season than anything else, just because he played so well across the entire field towards the end he could play wing back he could play a central attacking midfielder he could play as a striker if you really needed him to he could play wherever you needed to him and that was one of the biggest things i liked about his game and he's gonna serve Rutgers very well uh but for a poku in particular he's getting people don't go from the ncaa the Premier League that's not a jump people make and I understand that he's going out on loan he's going to be playing in Belgium which is also very cool it's not it's not a big five league but it's still a big deal to be playing for a tier one team where if your team finishes in the top of the table you get to play in the Champions League that's as much of a make it moment as you can find especially signing a contract with Leicester City who won the Premier League within the last 10 years and the only team outside of the big six to do so minus Tottenham my club who hasn't won anything Um, serious pain on that one, but this is a serious opportunity in this loan to a certain extent, this bit of his audition, he's going to earn either another loan because they don't think he's ready on the other side of this loan. because It's going to be the end of this season. It's not going to be on, it's going to be the six month roughly loan to the end of the season. And if he plays very well, there's a chance he could be incorporated in the squad. There's a chance he could go back out on loan to either the same team somewhere else, get more repetitions. Uh, but if he plays very well he could also see um, Leicester sending him on loan if that happens again to a club that is in the top five that maybe Leicester has bigger ambitions but right now their team's kind of in shambles in terms of rebuilding from that team that was really good because they've fallen off a bit since then I believe they're like their bottom six or 17 right now Um, but he's getting a big opportunity. And this could not only benefit Syracuse, but it also benefits just us soccer as a whole, seeing someone play in the NCAA and make that jump, earn that contract. That doesn't happen often. And it kind of, hopefully, and I think this is one thing that American soccer, from what I've been earned American football, I can say, I don't have to say American soccer. Um, One thing I've understood from watching this quite a bit is that it doesn't seem like there's an expectation or a dream in soccer the same way there is in other sports people don't yes they think oh i want to play in the premier it does it's not treated as like a grind mindset and this, from what i have quite experienced in the same way like they'll look at the mls like that's that's the goal and a bunch of players achieve that and that's a huge achievement most players don't do that but i think aiming and setting the standard and the goal of having these american athletes in soccer be able to play in that world stage is a goal in growing u.s soccer as a whole making it a content to be a primetime sport in the u.s the mls should grow and expand and continue to improve you saw a ton of contracts mls players going to these big leagues because there is a ton of talent and quality this needs that investment that time and in in the same way that women's sports need the investment in time and attention soccer in general just needs that time and attention they need to foster it in the same way that you need to give them attention more ads more revenue all of that type Um, And then for Syracuse in particular, everyone wants to play for a team that just sent their best player in as a sophomore to play for a Premier League side. Everyone wants to go play for a coach who can do that. And Syracuse as a whole has had a ton of talent with DeAndre Kerr leaving recently. And then this year you saw LaFonta get drafted. You saw um, Russell Shealy get a graphic with his pig when he got drafted ton of players achieving big things in Syracuse soccer. And yes, they lost a ton of talent, but in terms of transfers and recruiting, they brought in a Poku and LaFonte in the transfers last season. So they have a ton of opportunity. It's going to be challenging. I think next season to replicate anything close to where you just did. But I think if given that coaching staff and the way they've proven themselves to both be able to develop talent and recruit talent, both through transfers and as just first years, I think they're going to be in good shape and hopefully kind of enjoy the long-term contract, whatever that does mean in terms of length, that McIntyre just signed.
3: So Syracuse is a shoe in for the college cup, uh, once again, next season per Sammy, as we just heard. So, uh, maybe the year after, maybe, maybe the year after. after. Okay. No guaranteed national championship, but okay. from a team that did win a national championship last year to a team that is, we'll say not close to that Syracuse men's basketball. Um, before we get into what is wrong with the team, right? The X's and O's, things of that nature, a team that's that's lost three in a row and four of five going into a road game at Boston College. Um, let's address, because we've got four members of the media here, right? So let's address the uh, press conference after the game against Virginia. And and here's here's the background information. So Donna DeTota from Syracuse.com reported that... Um, Benny Williams was not in the building for Syracuse's game against Virginia. and there wasn't an explanation because that was a surprise to pretty much everybody. Uh, she had said that that Jim Beheim was expected to address that situation, Benny Williams status after the game. Uh, my guess is that's because she talked to someone at SU, even though I don't have direct knowledge of this, this is my guess based on the way things generally work. You see that Benny Williams isn't there warming up. You go up to, you know, the SID or someone at SU and say, hey, what's what's the deal with Benny? Is he here? Is he just getting treatment? Is, you know, what's what's going on? And they say, well, no, he's not in the building today. Uh, Coach Beheim will address this after the game. That was the official word that, that media received. So the game plays out, the game ends, and... You know, those types of things have happened before. And usually what what happens is during uh, Coach Beheim's opening statement, he'll discuss the game. And then at the end of his opening statement, he'll make a comment on whatever the situation is, the status of a certain player, uh, etc. And generally will say, you know, I'm I'm not answering further questions about that. That's the, the statement we're given. And, you know, then if people try to follow up, he'll say, guys, I already said I'm not answering that. And that's that. In this case, um, he didn't make a comment after, during his opening statement, and since that was basically the number one topic among fans, even throughout the game, as the game was playing out and Syracuse trying to upset a top 10 team and get a signature win and get themselves back into you know bubble talk and all of that, still the number one topic throughout the game was what's up with Benny Williams. So when it wasn't addressed during the opening statement in the post-game press conference, the very first question came in um, from a student reporter who said, you know, basically very calmly, respectfully, do you have an update on the status of Benny Williams?" And he was chastised for that question, which was, listen, I don't have a problem with, uh, I'll I'll give my thoughts on this before we go. Before we go to you guys, I don't necessarily have a problem with a sarcastic response if it's a bad question, right? If it's if it's a bad question, an uninformed question, those types of things, and you get a snarky response back, that doesn't really bother me all that much. Um, when you ask a very valid question, and as media, part of your job is to not only ask questions to get information, but to ask questions to get information that your readers, your followers, the fans, want, and everybody that was a Syracuse basketball fan wanted to know that information. So it's our job as media to ask the question, to get that information, to relay that information to them. That's that's literally a, the job description of media, essentially. So the question was not asked in a disrespectful way. And if it was, I wouldn't have had a problem with the snarky response either. I think you should show respect when you're asking a question. In this case, the question was asked respectfully. And the response back was to chastise the question chastise the reporter say your attitude is terrible and i thought it was inappropriate uh his response after he said that which was benny williams took a personal day he'll be back at practice on wednesday that's all he had to say if he had just said that without the first part then he's fine right everything's fine you're answering the question um but then after that he even said what no other questions typical syracuse and, and I think a lot of people had an issue with that as well, uh, because I think the reason there wasn't an immediate question after is because people were a little bit taken aback by the response to what everyone thought was a valid question. So those are my thoughts. I'll uh, I'll turn it over, Sammy, to you first and give your thoughts and we'll kind of go around the room
1: on on the question and the response. Yeah, the bad attitude comments, the pot in the kettle black on that one, he He has a bad attitude. Even when they win, he has a bad attitude and that's just him. It's fine. If that's, if that's the, it's been going going on for 47
3: years, him being snarky in post game press conferences has been going on for 47 years. That was one of the things that I wanted to mention. That's nothing new. It's the disrespectful nature of it though. It's one thing to be snarky. Like I said, when someone asked a a bad question or a dumb question, it's, it's another, when it's a very valid question and it was asked to you in a respectful way that that's not appropriate, in
1: my opinion. Yeah, no, Popovich is hilarious. He does that to perfection um, and even Belichick sometimes. But my big thing with him is you have Newhouse on your campus. You have a school. All of us came here to follow our dreams and become reporters, play-by-play, X, Y, or Z, whatever. We are here to learn how to ask these questions. We are here to learn how to be reporters, how to accomplish certain things, what our responsibilities are. Our responsibility is to get information and to try to answer questions. We're trying to report. We're trying to, in that scenario, figure out. I guarantee everybody in their, in that room, beside maybe one person whose hand was raised for a question, was going to ask the very same thing because they were promised a response and he didn't give it. That's not on the reporter. And he asked it in a fairly good way. He did. Happened, and then it happened a couple of weeks. Uh, I don't know exactly how long ago. I want to say it was like two weeks ago, maybe a week ago, with John Eads. And his question, everyone was like, oh, the wording. He could have worded it better. The way I interpreted that question is you're talking to Jim Bayham and he's been a basketball coach for nearly half a century. You're trying to explain to your, to him, Trying then he was saying, talking about how he wants respect, all that kind of stuff. You're talking to a a legend of the game. I, I won't deny it. You are trying to explain why you're asking the question. I understand you can word it more concisely, et cetera. He's just explaining where the question is coming from Two recent examples. And he's giving the context. Yes, coach knows the context, but he wants to, and Brendan, maybe he didn't have to do that, but in his mind, he's thinking, he, he probably is thinking, I'm talking to one of the greatest coaches in NCAA history, and he's been around for almost a cent- half a century. He's trying to basically give his credibility to the question, explain why it's why he's asking that question. And I understand people who think he shouldn't have done that. And that was maybe the rude part of the question or why he didn't like it. He's just trying to explain himself. And the question itself was incredibly valid. It was two recent examples. You can't sit. He can't possibly claim that it's not a valid question. And honestly, if I didn't ask about Benny Williams, I was going to ask, why did you collapse against another top ranked team? You waste another opportunity to get a quarter uh, quad one win. So I think both student reporters were perfectly in the right. You can say, hey, maybe they have a little more learning to do on how to ask the question, their wording, their tone, whatever nuances you want to argue. But 99.9% of this situation falls on Bayheim, And you either, this is a, you're going to a school, you work at a school that has the biggest student media probably influence there is in any college campus and the expectation that they're going to be great to throw that side shade of comment about that as well is just very out of line. And you, you want a positive relationship between coaches and athletes and reporters and reporters in the past may have rubbed him the wrong way. May have players the wrong way. Sure. Don't take them out on the students.
3: Yeah. So I'll, I'll, uh, before I throw it over to, uh, to Emily, and then we'll go to Josh, um, on the John Eads question. I do think that he could have, um, he could have worded that or asked it in a different way uh, or in a, I, I guess, I don't know if more respectful way is the right word, but in, in a different way that that basically is asking the same thing, but, you know, different words, et cetera. Uh, however, um, you know, A, I, I, I think he probably will learn from that, which is all part of the experience. But if you're uh, Jim Beheim in that situation, you know, perhaps rather than walking out, I do think walking out is better than chastising. Honestly, uh, I'd rather have that's you just unfair. work out. Uh, but, you know, perhaps you answer the question because you, you pretty much know what he's asking, regardless of the exact verbiage that's used. You you know what he's getting at. Right. So you answer the question. And then if you have an issue with the way that he asked the question, then perhaps you get in touch with him at some point after the fact. Right. Because Jim Beheim has a way to find out, hey, who is that guy? How do I get in touch with him? And you just say, hey, listen, I understand what you were getting at. Here's some advice from me. When you're gonna when you ask a question like that, if you ask it this way, which is slightly worded differently, then you know, perhaps you wouldn't get a negative response because my initial reaction to you was to clap back at you. I did not, but you know, here's here's how you could word that better so that you don't come across as disrespectful. I knew you weren't trying to be, etc. So you can be a teacher in that moment. That's that's my thought on that. But, uh, Emily, a fair I'll, I'll, I'll get, let you, uh, I'll open the floor to you, to your thoughts on the whole situation.
2: Yeah. I 100% agree about, you know, reaching out to the student after and being like, Hey, listen, you're going to learn from this. Here's how you do it. Because once again, he's been here for 47 years and new house has been fantastic for a really long time. It's, it's been great for most of his lifetime. He should know that these are still students. They're still learning, but, with the most recent incident about the Benny Williams question, I don't think that there is anything that the reporter could have done better. I mean, he, he asked a question that, and there was, you know, I listened to it about five times because I agree. I think John Eads could have worded his question better, but this most recent reporter, Sam, there was nothing he could have done differently to not get that response. It's it comes down to Jim Beheim. Using those 47 years of experience with the media to understand when to not let his emotions take over. Yes, it's frustrating. That's a really frustrating, brutal loss. Don't take it out on student reporters who want to know the answer to a question that everyone is asking. Like Sammy said, every single reporter in that room wanted to know where Benny Williams was. That student just happened to be the unfortunate soul who got called on first. But I also think that if it wasn't a student that asked that question, I don't know if he gives that, I don't know if he gives that reply. I think if it's someone that he is more familiar with, who's been covering the team for years, I don't know if he gives that kind of a snarky reply or says anything about attitude. I think he just curtly says, you know, he took a personal day. He'll be back at practice. I, I just, I don't know what it was about that kid that set him off, but I don't think a professional reporter gets that kind of response. Again, that's all speculation, but I don't think, a professional reporter say like a Mike waters or a Donna detota. I don't think they get that kind of response.
3: So I'll, um, before we go to Josh, I'll respond to that. I'll, I'll say I'll disagree with you slightly. Now it's possible in this situation, you could be correct, but I have seen him spar with both of them during press conferences before. So I, I think my impression is that if there's something that you have written perhaps recently, that he doesn't agree with or thinks is unfair, you are more likely to receive a response like that, even if your question is valid. So now I don't know. I think the reporter's name is Sam. Am I remember? Am I correct on that? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So I don't know if if there's something that he wrote that perhaps Coach Beheim didn't like or agree with or thought was an unfair criticism of him or the program or whatever the situation is, and so that's kind of how it manifested itself. I, I've I've seen that before where. A reporter will ask him a question and he'll give a response that could be viewed as snarky, but then kind of go off on a tangent about how something that they wrote was not valid. So I don't know if this was related to something like that in any way, Uh, just to go to your, I don't know what this reporter could have done to receive that response. It's possible that there's something like that going on that we're unaware of, uh, but it's also possible that it's not. He was just frustrated with the game and you know, he was maybe hoping he'd get through the press conference without someone asking about Benny Williams. I, I don't know if if that was the expectation or not, but either way, um, we'll we'll go to Josh here to uh, to get his thoughts on um, on Jim Behan. For me,
0: like it is a it's a very unique perspective because I you know I've I've been an athlete and somebody that was on the other side of the mic longer than I've been a media member, so I I just you know I relate to the especially this season you know. Because they is like a million years old. There's another season where they're underachieving and not, you know, not close to NCAA tournament expectations. Like, I've just been in that situation, man. You know, cause you tough loss, you know, you you want to get, you want to pour into your team, you wanna, you know, regroup, get on the board, get in the film room. And you know, the, the press obligation can feel a little bit like of a speed bump into, you know, impeding your improving your team. But you no, know, ultimately. Everybody in that, especially the people in that room, you know, like you said, student reporters, like everybody in that room is professional, you know, regardless if they're getting paid to be there or not. And they need to be treated as such, you feel what I'm saying, because you know, there's a there's a there's a decorum and there's a way to do things. And if somebody, you feel what I'm saying, if a GMAC came off the bench and started controlling substitution patterns or started recruiting guys that they didn't approve of, you know, he wouldn't like that. So we're gonna expect a certain decorum and a certain way to, you know what I'm saying, address the media for the media to have access to the to the the coaches, you know there needs to be a certain modicum of decorum and respect back. So, you know what I'm saying? Because for, to my knowledge, you know what I'm saying, you have been here longer than us. Mike, Emily lives here, but if there's been any big media incident or any out-of-the-line incident with the media, you know, that's a different conversation where we can justify, you know, his snarkiness or his, you know, whatever. But in the time I've been here, and nobody's ever remarked about it, I haven't observed any media member, you know, extremely out of bounds in any type of way that warrants the type of, you know, disrespect that he's down here, you know, doing the people. So you know, I it's the worst kind too because I definitely see him do it to you know people, people that he knows he can get away with doing that stuff too. You know, I've been you know engaged in the, the basketball program since you know the first meeting day. You know, he's never spoken to me like that, and he, you know he's had he's had ample opportunity to, unfortunately. So um, the picking and choosing is not really cool. Um, like you said, us being in this business and you know being in grad school and being in News House. You talk about learning experience. You know, one of the biggest things you learn is that everybody's not easy to work with. Everybody is not in McIntyre and, you know, helpful to the media and able to, you know, facilitate things. So, you know, I'm a big – you know, As we turn the calendar to 2023, I'm big on, you know, not losses, not lessons. I know G's probably feel like that's a loss, but it's a lesson, brother. Um, but even I'm saying, I don't think Coach Behan needs to get out them lessons with that type of regularity that he's doing it right now.
3: No, like like I said, I, I think if, if you want to um... – you know, impart some wisdom on a student reporter. I think um, having that conversation with them after the press conference privately is the appropriate time to do that. And you can give them suggestions. Listen, I've been a head coach. I've done millions of press conferences. And in my experience, you're more likely to get the response you're looking for if you ask that question this way instead of the way you did. And say, take it or leave it, up to you. But I wanted to reach out and have that conversation with you. I, I, I think that would be completely... Uh, appropriate would be valid I think the student reporter whoever he did that with would appreciate that type of advice from someone who's been in this business as, as long as he has um and you know I, I, he may have done that in the past with with other people as well as it's, it's, it's entirely possible that he has and we just don't know about it but um uh, I will way... say
0: this though I will say this before we keep because it, it's like I, we all not painting we're all kind of similar in our you know opinion about this situation yeah. But I will say this on the flip side, you know, the devil, the devil don't need no advocate, but I'll play it this time. You know, like I said, I've been a guy that's had, you know, what's a media day representing my team, you know what I'm saying? For press appearance, stuff like that. And, you know, there is a thing to where media is, you know, formulating questions and asking you things in a certain way to you know, elicit a certain response out of you. So oh. we have to be responsible enough as media members to know that like, you know, not me doing our job maliciously or, you know, especially with this, Read the room, you know, you know what I'm saying? Even if you think a question is borderline, you know, after, you know, the 10th loss of the season and we're not – we're just barely halfway through, you can you, – you have to be able to have some text, some nuance and be like, hey, even if I do want this answered, let me present it in the most non-threatening way as possible because, you know, ultimately at the end of the day, you know, these these coaches and these athletes, you know, I'm saying, I just came off that side, like, they're obligated to sit there and appear. You know what I'm saying? We saw what Marshawn Lynch did. The, the 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 lack of content we got from that Super Bowl, you know, media appearance. I'm just saying they, so I don't they're not fine. obligated to give you anything interesting or to tell you anything, you know, at their own volition. So you know, we have to really kind of address. We had to re-uh focus on, you know, what are we all here for? What are we doing? Playing, giving respect to people on both sides of the coin, but just to give a little, you know, counterpoint, like the media, you know, we had to just be, especially with a guy like Behan, that's you know, proven to be, you know, snarky. We had to just take, you know. Uh, even more steps to be like um accommodating if you want the information that you want.
2: Yeah, well listen,
3: I, I think there's I think there's responsibility on both parties in terms of how that interaction goes on in a lot of ways. And and like I said with the with the question that John Eads presented, um in, in how that was presented and could have been done so in, in a different way. And you know, Bayheim walked out, I think in part because of how the question was asked. And that's a learning moment for John. But in the only thing I'll say is, in this case, I don't think the way the question was asked or the the topic of the question was invalid in any way. And this is, listen, I've been called a Beheim homer and a Beheim apologist a million times on Twitter. I mean, I'm sure there are people listening right now that think that I am, you know, a I cozy up to Bayheim, cozy up to Dino. I've been accused of being scared to challenge any Syracuse head coach because I need their relationships to get information, which is pure nonsense. But I don't think that his response in this situation is defensible. I think there's a lot of situations where a question was asked where Josh's point is 100% valid, that there's some, at least some responsibility on the media and the way the questions were asked. It's just this question regarding the Benny Williams thing. Uh, I just I, I don't think there's there's much there, you know, from I, from a, a coach's perspective and how he he could have responded to
1: it. I did just want to say, in general, I, I've I've been able to be in terms of one post game press conference. I've watched a bunch of the other ones. He doesn't really answer the questions, even when he isn't being snarky. So I feel like he's got to come in on some way. Like even if you're not going to give us a straight answer. Don't give attitude back to the reporter unless it's deserved, that's fair. But again, Benny Williams didn't practice today. So clearly his own answer was not true. It wasn't just a personal date. There's a bigger thing going on. And even if Benny is dealing with any, whatever, that's fine. Full right to do so. But you have to, if you're going to give as short of an answer and one that clearly wasn't the whole truth, just give it as, as before you get to questions and resolve this whole issue. It doesn't need to happen. All you have to do is your school promised that you would make a comment just make the comment just say he had a personal day not responding even though that wasn't the whole truth resolves any issue
3: Yeah now just uh just for clarification it was reported by um, Mike Waters, Stephen Fonte, and Donna de that he was back at practice today. Now he wasn't in practice s- he wasn't in practice yesterday because they had a day off, but they they have all reported that he was back at practice today. Um, oh, he did return to
1: practice today. Okay, he did gotcha. return to practice today. I thought that he wasn't at practice today. Okay, so understood. that's
3: that's that was their report. Again, I'm I'm assuming that was from sources. Uh, I don't I don't think okay. anyone was actually at practice, but that was uh, the reporting there. So we'll see if okay. if that continues. But let's let's now turn our focus with Syracuse men's basketball into on the court, which is what's wrong with them. They're they're 13 and 10. And before we go around the room, I'll give a quick synopsis of what I think this is. I think this is a season of what ifs because they've lost four or five, three in a row of the four in the last five that they've lost. Three of them were games where they had control or the lead or a chance to take the lead in the final minute or so of the game. Uh, Miami and North Carolina games, especially they had control of those games in various ways in the final minute or two minutes. And they let each of those slip away. The Virginia game, they never really had control down the stretch, but that was a back and forth game. They had the ball down by two in the final, you know, minute or so to go. So they had a chance to tie or take the lead, Um, but they lost all of them. If you take those four games and three of them, two of them go Syracuse's way, I think this team is viewed completely differently than how they're viewed right now. They're thirteen and ten. They're six and six in the conference, and it's a it's another double digit loss season for Syracuse. It's seven or eight in a row, whatever it is, longest stretch in Bayheim's career. And um, you know the the end result is you are what your record says you are. Right, you're thirteen and ten. You are a team that's not even on the bubble You're you, When you're looking at bracketology, they do the last four in the next, the first four out the next four out Syracuse isn't on the next four after that, or the next four after that, or the next four after that. I mean, they are way off. They're in, um, NIT bubble territory at this point. So yeah, that's when you're Syracuse basketball and you're the name brand that Jim Beheim has built them up to be over 47 years, that's an unacceptable situation to be in. That said, they are a very young team in a lot of key areas. They have shown a lot of improvement in what they were at the beginning of the season, the team that lost to Colgate, for example. And they've been one or two plays in games where you've got freshmen sometimes handling the ball in those key situations from being 16 and 7, something like that, and you're right on the cusp of potentially being a ranked team you're in the thick of, of being a bubble team and you're viewed as a team that has come a long way since the beginning of the season as playing much better you don't make those plays down the stretch of the game and now you're viewed as a bad team and your fan base is you know rising up against you once the coach fired in a complete reset of the program that's a couple of bounces here or there that that can completely change how a team is viewed so that's that's kind of my view on it. Uh, Josh, we'll, we'll go back to you and, and start with your thoughts on where Syracuse men's basketball is at this point.
0: Um, We can look at the football season and we can, uh, and I use it to compare it like this, I think what we thought of this team before this season is primarily true. We look at the football season, we saw that, you know, there's opportunity for a lot of wins to get off to a good start, to build a lot of momentum. Um, and, you know, we recognized that the second half of the season was going to be a lot tougher for them. So, you know, Emily, we did a thousand shows together. We talked about it through. I, I think that pretty much, you know, with the script, you know what I'm saying, you know, Arian Foster has some interesting comments recently. So I think that that was pretty much on script. You know what I'm saying? 6-0 start, you know, top 15 matchup in the Dome. Um, and, yeah, you end up 7-6. and six, So you, that tells you all you need to know about the second half of the season. And I think that that applies to the other big sport around SU. We looked at this team, a team that missed the tournament by a not so slim margin last year. Uh, Judah Judamist came into the top-50 recruit in the country. We thought that he could be a one-and-done guy. He looked mostly like that. You know, the thing that he didn't do well, he doesn't do well shooting, um, facilitating particularly well, you know, those are kind of freshman things. But he's been, you know, he's been reasonably everything you can ask for, for from him. Um, you know, Benny Williams has continued to look like Benny Williams from last year. Um, Justin Taylor has come in and looked like a fringe three-star, four-star guy, you know, good, good, good shooting off the bench. If you know what I'm saying? But not really anything consistent. Um, Chris Bell, you know, you might argue, you know, a slight disappointment, you know, for me, you know what I'm saying, especially with the the rebounding mishaps and whatnot. I mean, he around recently. He shot a lot better, but even before, you know, I was one of the bigger, the bigger critics of him and his inability to shoot as a shooter. But yeah, you have a, um, you have a roster that's not talented enough to make the NCAA tournament. Um, with a record of 13 to 10, that's not on track to make the NCAA tournament. So I think that, you know, obviously, like you said, you know, the name brand and uh, the expectations coming from the Big East and all the, the traditional lore of SU basketball, but sometimes you ain't got it. You know, and this year it was a year that where, you know, you would, you would have been relying on, you know, Judah Mintz to play, um, you know, shout out my home team, at a level of a guy like Kendrick Davis to where he was going to have to do everything for SU to be, you know, a tournament team. And, you know, so some, some years you don't got it. You know, this is seems to be um, a trend, you know, as Bayon we're assuming close out his career somewhat soon. Um, a lot of people are just looking for a transitional, you know, just some sort of transition shakeup in the basketball uh, program. I think that, you know, and disappointing it is, like you said, you know, really, high, really hard five games these past five contests. But um, if you looked at this team preseason and you looked at it now, you know, 23 games in you you would um you you'd be pretty much on par with what you thought was happening. So um the one good thing about being at a power five conference, you got a lot of quad one and quad two opportunities um coming up. Um you are in that name brand. So regardless of what the committee actually said, that always factors in, you know, you know, have gotten in the tournament when they deserve to before. And if you can make some good run, make win some games and make a good run in the ACC tournament, you know, that can happen again. But you're not um you're not you're not putting yourself in an advantageous situation. And it's not a surprise because you don't have you don't have a strong five. You, you can you could argue that your starting five is not top five in the ACC right now. And that doesn't, that's not the, the formula for a tournament team.
3: Emily, your thoughts.
2: I've lived here my whole life. I've seen SU basketball at its best, at its worst. And this is really near the worst. I don't know if it's because they're such a young team, but the way I see the young team is this is close to the end of beheim's career he brings in these young kids and gives whoever replaces him something to work with unfortunately that's it's not looking like that right now because in order to have something to work with you have to have at least one player you can count on consistently consistency is such a problem for this team i mean i was lucky enough to cover the unc game there were points in that game where i'm thinking to myself wow like imagine if we'd won those close games we're we're in the NCAA tournament field, maybe on the bubble, but the inconsistency is what kills it. It's, it's the untimely turnovers. It's the poor shot selection. When you need it the best, there are so many things that this team cannot do consistently and it all piles up. But I think that at least one bright spot from this last game is Malik Brown. I mean, he looked, he looked great. He, he plays hard whenever he plays. He, it just doesn't always reflect in his box score. I like him as someone to watch because realistically, Judamance is gone. Um, I think him and Justin Taylor are the future of this program. And if I'm Coach Bayheim, I'm doing everything in my power to keep them after I'm gone. But I mean, it's this is bad. I mean, I I've, again, I've seen Syracuse basketball make deep tournament runs to not, as you said, not even be in the NIT field. That's really embarrassing for a team that is coached by one of the all time greats. I just, I'm honestly speechless at this point about the state of the program. It does need to change. I think you need someone who's not so insistent on playing the two, three zone when college players have been getting better at shooting threes for the last two decades. At this point, it doesn't work anymore. You have to switch it up. You need a younger coach for that. You need a coach. That's not as stubborn and you need a coach with less to lose because Jim Bayheim, he has people saying now, Oh, you know, you're not a good coach anymore no, he's, he's a good coach, but get a young guy in there who, you know, has nothing to lose and something to prove. You know, I think that's what this program needs is someone who's a little bit hungrier at, at the wheel.
3: So I I want to address your Malik Brown comment. Um, the best part about Malik Brown is that when Syracuse signed their recruiting class last year, and I think it was, it was ranked top 15 in the country by most recruiting services, um, the people that downplayed it pointed to Malik Brown as one of the reasons to say, "Ah, it's not as good as what the rankings are because he was only rated as a three-star prospect." Mm-hmm. And I said routinely, "Don't be surprised if he ends up being one of or the best player in this class because I thought he was drastically underrated." So the fact that he's proving me right is why he is my current favorite player because he makes me look smart and that's hard to do. So I appreciate that. Uh <laughs> Sammy, your your thoughts on on where Syracuse
1: basketball is right now? Just very briefly, I I completely agree on the Brown point. He broke out in Virginia in a game that I covered, Virginia Tech, were kind of his two kind of first games really coming onto the scene. And he had a double double against Virginia Tech and he's been a consistent force. And I think Syracuse has, I would say, more often than not been better off when he's on the floor, at least getting consistent minutes and getting above that 20 minute mark at the very least. Like he's been such a, a productive force when he's been in there. Um to respond to Emily on the Beheim point. I do agree. He's definitely still a good coach. And if you want to run a two, three, there's no one better to talk to. He knows it like the back of his hand, but the problem I think is, and it's different in college because you don't have like the same core, every single, like you're not going to keep the same hypothetically in college or in in the NBA, you're not gonna have the same point guard for four to four to five years. It's not going to happen. But again, you as a facer, you sometimes you just need to change. Sometimes you, you just kind of run out of time. Sometimes for example, I'll use the Colts for example because I think Frank Reich's a fantastic coach. I thought I thought he should have been just allowed to finish the season because he's done a lot. He's great and he deserved another opportunity. It was time for it to go. It was just stale. Just the it just was time, and that's it. And I think you're kind of to the point where unless something drastically changes, Bayheim's kind of at his time. Um, and I, I think that's all it comes down to. He is a great coach. And again, and no one can take that away. One national title, he is what the last or really you know kind of the historic coach of core of coaches. he's really one of the last, if not the last one standing. Um, but you see kind of the way they handle these close game situations the way you and, and I also agree thing too, when there's some games where they play pretty well on the perimeter against Virginia Tech the first meeting, not the one where they lost by 15. But the one in the first meeting here in Syracuse, they played very well covering the perimeter. Joe Padula was terrible. for, uh, Sean Padula was terrible from deep as a team. They were three for 19. But they got tore apart down low. So there's no, there's no compromise there. You have to find a way to consistently stop both ends. Otherwise, you're just going to get torched.
3: So let's go from the men's team to the women's team because they are – Somewhat in a similar situation, in that they're on the outside looking in of the NCAA tournament picture, uh, even though they don't have quite as many losses as uh, the Meds team does. I, th- I think they have eight at the moment, but um, even still, they've they've played pretty well this season for most of it. It is year one; it's not year forty seven, so that's that's part of it too, right? So there's a transition period, trying to set the tone for your culture, uh, get your players in there. And the roster is so different from last year. There's zero continuity because you had to bring in transfers all over the place um and, and freshmen and all of that. But Uh, You know, they they've been in situations where they were up nine against a good NC State team uh, at home and lost that game. They've had a fourth quarter problem, much like the men's team has had a closing games problem. The women's team kind of has as well. They were in a game against Notre Dame and then, uh, you know, kind of fell apart in the fourth quarter. They were up double digits at Penn State and lost that game because uh, uh, Penn State blew them out in the fourth quarter. It's been an issue with the women's team all season where they've really fallen apart in the fourth quarter. And I feel like it's cost them several potential wins, but at least, you know, two or three that would put them on the right side of the bubble, whereas now they're on the wrong side of the bubble. But uh, even with all of that, Aisha Fair is having a tremendous season. She is unbelievably fun to watch. I would encourage anyone that isn't watching Syracuse Women's Basketball to turn on a game that they're playing, go to the dome, watch her play. She is unbelievably talented, can score as well as anybody in the country. Um, and, and she's, like I said, just having a, a f- absolutely phenomenal season. Um, that said, I think, you know, given what they were last year and how non-competitive they were all season. Uh, you can see the foundation that Felicia Legette-Jack is laying. And I think you feel pretty positive about the trajectory of the program, even if they don't end up making the tournament this year. That's that's my take on it. Uh, we'll go back to you, Sammy, for for your thoughts on, on the women's team.
1: Yeah, I'm more or less in the same boat that I think there's a lot of promise. And I think the fact that a lot of players wanted to come play uh for uh Fushika Jack is one of the bigger points too is like not only is she coming in as a first year coach and producing what has so far been a winning season, um she's got a lot of players that want to play for her. And she's creating it seems like she's creating a culture. I know I'm on the outside looking in, but it seems like she's creating something here. You can kind of see the groundwork that as you mentioned. Um and, and, and as you mentioned Fair's been incredible. Uh, she nearly like 20 points per game now. Um I, I would have Again, kind of coming into the season, I did expect a little more on the offensive end from Hyman, but for the most part, she's been good. Um, expect a little more, a little more output there, but she's been fairly um, decent, at least in t- distribution, um, etc. But they're also very deep. I mean, you're getting um, quite a bit of production. I mean, you're what six man is scoring six over six points per game. Like you're getting some distance production. There's a lot of positives when you look up and down this team there, you just it seems like it's one of those experience things, and I know people are going to say, Oh, you should give the benefit of the doubt in the same way to Bayheim's team because they're pretty inexperienced right now. Beheim's not inexperienced, and this isn't his first year, this isn't something where he's trying to change a program, a culture, or whatever. So, I don't think he deserves to the same extent that benefit of the doubt. He should get a little, little kind of layoff there, but. This is FLJ building something, and I do see a lot of positive. As long as this momentum can continue, I know fair is going to be impossible to replace, but you got to keep that momentum going. But I do see something building here for sure. Emily, your thoughts?
2: So I have the privilege of covering this team for another outlet, and so I've gotten to know the team very, very well. And everything that you guys have been saying is completely correct. And to your point, Sammy, about the culture she's building. These players love to play for her. And it's so clear because she brought over like four or five transfers from her old school. The, like players don't follow their coach unless they want to play for that coach. It's they love her. They love playing for her. And it's it's a fourth quarter problem. It feels like every loss that I cover for that team. It's because they had a horrific fourth quarter. And I don't know what has to change. I don't know if it's a lineup thing. I don't know, because it seems like Coach Jack has tried everything. And I'm not, I'm not a basketball coach. I don't know the answer to this question. But at this point, I'm not sure what it is if it's not a mental thing because she has tried everything. She's tried every lineup rotation. She has tried every kind of defense you can possibly put on any team. It's just not working. But uh, this is. This is encouraging for a first year head coach to, in my opinion, be very solidly in the NIT, taking over a program that was probably one of the worst teams in college basketball. That's pretty good. Um, I mean, obviously the NCAA postseason is ideal, and it's not out of the picture for SU yet. They just have a lot of hard work to get there. And that includes, you know, playing a good fourth quarter, playing a full 40 minutes of basketball. But it's very encouraging. It's a fun team to watch. And again, D.A. Fair, she's special. I mean, she's she's the best player that SU women's basketball has had in years. Again, I've lived here my whole life. I grew up going to these games. I don't remember a player like De'Asia Fair, except from when I was a really, really little kid. She's special. Like she is, she's going to be a pro. And to think that she is, she was unrecognized as she is. It's insane. She's second in ACC in scoring. She's at 19.9 points per game, took over Haley Van Lith, even though Haley Van Lith came in the dome and beat us last weekend. It was, it's, It's amazing to have such a great player on SU again, because it's really been a while since the team has gotten enough recognition for that player to get the recognition they deserve as well. And I still think she's underappreciated, but it's a fun team, really good foundation. I'm excited to follow them in the future. Even when I'm no longer here, this is, this is a team to watch. I think coach like Jack is building something really, really special and culture really is everything when it comes to sports.
3: And and uh Fair outplayed Van Lith in that game, even though Louisville ended oh, yeah. up winning, uh oh, significantly yeah. outplayed and she was basically playing on one leg for about three quarters of that game.
2: And the injuries it, in that game were so painful to watch. It,
3: it was it was insane. But um yeah, that aside, um, you know, the only thing I think they haven't tried yet is playing with uh six players on the floor and yep. somehow getting away with that. But um <laughs> Josh, your thought on the on the women's team. Cool. Well.
0: I think I've said it before. Um, I think I'm pretty much convinced. Like I said, especially with the count of the tournament, the age of fair, the most um dynamic basketball player that we have on campus. You know, completely well-rounded skill set. You know, like uh, like when she, she gets into her, me, her dribble. I mean, ain't seen me in bars. I'm even going <laughs> crazy, but yeah. And then the ones that count in the dome, you know, she's probably number one over me. But now, like when you talk about like a reliable, consistent, dynamic scoring threat. Shot making from all over the floor, like the thing. One of the biggest things that a you're missing on the men's team, and b you're you know we got two very talented guards in Judah and um and Joe, but they're both kind of missing components of you know that shot making. Deja bringing into one package, you know Joe's not really dynamic at the rim, and defensively he's you know kind of a liability. And Judah, you know he's he's just a non shooter, but Deja just she combines the both of those things, all of you know the best characteristics of both. To be one of the highest scoring guards in the ACC, and she's so, averaging you know, almost big...
3: three steals a game. To go to your point about being well, right well rounded, she's averaging exactly. two point six steals per game. I...
0: Exactly for I mean because I don't for women's so I don't I don't know how she compares to turn you know the height, but she's a she's a smaller guard, but that ability to be you know a nuisance on ball and to make plays you know in the on ball and in the passing lanes, that's just you know you talk about uh, football. The turnovers creating extra position that's invaluable for your offense. So. When you come down in the college game versus both men's and women's, I think more more than the professional game, it's a it's a guard driven game. And when you have a guard like Deja Fair and um, a more complete and a complementary um, supporting cast in the men' got with D- Dariana Lewis, with a- Dariana Lewis, with Asia Strong, with some of the other guards like Teacher Hyman that have been able to spring in production. I think that this team resembles one of the um you know of the Malachi Richardson you know men's teams are like if they can just get into the tournament they can get uh seated they have some real potential to do a lot of damage because this team is really um complete interior presence shot making uh identified star and um you know a coach that's been there and it's, I mean cuz we, we when you talk about the tournament you want um cuz they've been there been in high level games and while uh, Coach Jack is new to Sarah she's not um new to high-level basketball in intense games. So I think that when you look at the um the outlooks of both teams, got to be way more hopeful for the women's team because, you know, even if it comes all down to it, when the building is burned down, when you've got a guard like De'Adee Fair, like you can just throw the ball, you can roll the ball to her and tell her to go make a play. And that's an invaluable skill. So I think that, you know, getting to the tournament, we have some work to do, but we can get in there, you know, I think that should be, you know, more games than not, she'll be the best player on the floor.
3: Yeah, no question. And honestly, I, the path for the men's team to get in the tournament is it's much more difficult. But I, I don't think either team is is one that that teams want to see in the tournament just because the style of play and, and all of that. But um, quick note on National Signing Day, Syracuse football signed two players, uh, wide receiver from Texas, Texas. Uh, Darrell Gill, 6'3", 180, runs a 4'4", very productive at the highest level of Texas high school football. So a nice get for Syracuse there. And then they grabbed uh, long snapper graduate transfer uh, Tom Callahan which will give some people some Tommy boy references there, but he'll be coming in to take over for Aaron Balinski. Now, real quick, uh, a couple of minutes here from Emily on the start of Syracuse men's and women's lacrosse. The men open this Saturday against Vermont in the Dome and the women open on the 11th against Northwestern in the Dome. Your expectations, realistic expectations, Emily, for both uh, the men's and women's team.
2: I think from the women's team, it's realistic to expect them to make a run in the NCAA tournament. This team is loaded with talent, preseason player of the year, a head coach that the players respect, is a legend of the game herself, but also with the pedigree to do it. I mean, they they really did not lose a lot of their best players. They didn't lose a lot of them. You have the Tyrell Twins coming back, which is huge, but in your conference, you also have Charlotte North from Boston College gone you cannot underestimate the importance of, of having players like Charlotte North gone, but to the men's side of things, this is not the Syracuse lacrosse. like they did not meet the Syracuse lacrosse standard that has been set last year. It was not good. It was a nightmare. Um, obviously there in the past few years have been things on the field, off the field. It has not been good for Syracuse lacrosse. There have been some, some incidents off the field, but I have undoubtedly affected the culture and the mindset on the team. But an expectation for this year, given the talent that they did bring in, they brought in a phenomenal recruit, a phenomenal grad transfer. You have to be hopeful that they'll at least, at least make the tournament, if not be right outside looking in. I think it's a realistic expectation, especially when you have a coach like Gate who is so experienced and has, you know, the the accolades to his name. I think it's, it's reasonable to expect them to make the tournament, but I think it's a little more reasonable to say right outside looking in like the equivalent of an NCAA bubble team. I think that would be the most realistic expectation for the men. Whereas the women's I would be disappointed if they did not make the tournament and at least win a game or two.
3: Yeah. Honestly, I think with the, with the state of the women's program, I think anytime they don't make the final four, it can be viewed as a disappointment. That's the level. That's the level of expectation that they've created, but that'll do it for episode 65 of the believe in Syracuse podcast for Josh Emily and Sammy. I am Mike McAllister from AllSyracus.com and we'll see you next time.